0: You are listening to a bonus episode of On The Tape and OK Computer. This episode will be in both feeds. This was a really special interview that I had with Stuart Sopp. He is the CEO and founder of Current, which is also the presenting sponsor of OK Computer
1: and a supporter of On The Tape. Guy Dami, thanks for joining me. How are you, bud? I'm doing really well. I'm so excited for this interview. I love stuff like this. I love his background. You know, we share similar backgrounds although he is far more accomplished than I, Dan. Well, listen, you know, the listener is going to really enjoy this because, you know, Stuart's path through
0: finance started as an FX trader and he traded at large banks all over the world from London to Sydney to Hong Kong back to New York. And it was really interesting talking to Stuart. I've known Stuart, I've become good friends with Stuart over the last couple of years. I just didn't know where the origin for current came from. He had a young guy sitting on his desk who showed him the Bitcoin white paper years ago, and it just kind of changed the way he thought of trading foreign exchange and he created a company to kind of manifest a little bit of that kind of crypto ethos in a way. Guy, you're into the crypto ethos, aren't you, buddy?
1: I am. And I remember when I saw the Bitcoin white paper back in 2013, (laughs) it changed my life as well. I'm just saying. All right. Well, listen, on that note, enjoy
0: my conversation with Stuart Sopp, the CEO founder of Current Stuart Sopp is the CEO and founder of Current, a leading U.S. financial technology platform serving Americans working to create better future for themselves. From 1999 to 2014, he spent his career developing and trading financial systems at Morgan Stanley, Citi, and Deutsche Bank. He started Current after recognizing that the growing inequality gap could be addressed through the innovation in technology to improve financial outcomes for everyone – all right, Stuart Sopp, welcome to, actually, not just on the tape, this is going to run on OK Computer, and I got to say, shout out to you and your team at Current, because you are also a sponsor of this fine podcast, so thank you very much, my man. Proud sponsor. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, man. Listen, first things first, and we do this a lot on on the tape, we got to give a shout out to Joe Marchese over there at Human Ventures and the whole team, and Heather, because I know you because of Joe and Heather. We met... I think in March of 2020, right before the world changed. I think we had probably one of the last dinners in New York City at Pasquale Jones. Shout out to Ryan Hardy there. That was delicious. But at the time, I remember you and I sat there, we had a few cocktails and we were really talking about your background because I think Joe was like, you got to meet this guy. He was an FX trader all over the world, in London, in Sydney, in Hong Kong. And you and I chatted a lot about that. Give our listener a sense of, how you got around the world trading FX, and then we're going to talk about how you started Current.
2: You can always rely on Joe for remembering all the details. That was a great dinner, by the way.
0: That was. Did we know the world was about to change? That was really interesting. It literally was the first week of March of 2020. And I felt like we were all like, all right, let's get one in before we shut down for a couple weeks.
2: Yeah. New York was definitely ground zero for the US, wasn't it? So we kind of knew. We were preparing current employees for working from home for that week. You really
0: thought it was going to be weeks, though, right? Yeah, maybe months, maybe two months, just from what China was doing, but not two years. Going back to your prior career, you had spent a lot of time in Asia and Australia. They hit it hard really quickly. Were you getting a sense from some of your contacts, your ex-colleagues?
2: Yeah, so I lived in Hong Kong in 2009 to 12, 13. And so they just, maybe five, six years, they'd gone through SARS. So basically, they were saying to me, you go through this thing and you buy real estate. Real estate is the thing you meant to buy because it gets depressed in the pandemic and everyone runs away. And that's the real thing you should buy. And guess what? (laughs) We've seen exactly the same thing. But it was my mother. I have my parents. They live three hours north of Wuhan, weirdly enough. No joke. They moved back in October last year. So they were telling me all sorts of crazy things in January.
0: And I was like, all right, this is more real than we think. On CBC's Fast Money, I remember saying this in late January or so, a city in China larger than any city in America that no one's ever heard of in America, just shut down. And you're asking me whether we think there's going to be palpitations in the stock market. For us, it's really hard to quantify it because it is literally, and you know this as you're putting on your ex-trader hat, it was the definition of a black swan. And you said you were already starting to prepare your company for going remote a little bit. I remember at that dinner speaking to you about the company and where you were going. We're going to get to that. But your business absolutely exploded during that period. Did you foresee any of the trends? Obviously, it went on longer than we expected, but certain behaviors, especially in the finance community, just exploded the acceleration of that behavior. Being an ex-macro trader, always
2: roadmapped around macro events. Now, of course, you cannot predict one in a 110-year event, but you're predicting and going along with... The tailwinds, which is access, simplicity, liquidity, and of course, basically moving finance online. And so the pandemic pulled forward all those things because no one could really go in store, which is a bank branch. And so 2020 hastened and pulled forward a lot of the growth that we've seen that with maybe Peloton and maybe it doesn't rebound. But for banking, for example, it actually proved trust. We did go back to the office, all tested, all good. Yes. A lot of people in current did get COVID the first time yeah. in March and April. But in, by June, we were really working very, very hard to make sure that everyone was delivering a product and making sure that they were getting stimulus checks as quickly as possible, using our balance sheet and all those things to the people who needed it the most in America. And so it was a big responsibility because we were primarily banking people who
0: were living paycheck to paycheck. Just going back to your career, though, in finance as a trader, and you just mentioned something I think is really interesting, the digitization of all of this. Did that change your career? Is that one of the reasons why you got the heck out of it at some point? Well, foreign exchange is super interesting. It's very
2: similar to the crypto market now. It was 24-6 in those days. I got to travel around the world. I got to work from different centers. And of course, people are experiencing that right now, that luxury and that freedom, maybe more so now than they were a year ago. I met a young man at the time, Trevor Marshall, who's the CTO of Current, in Morgan Stanley, 2012 in New York. I was running the foreign exchange desk then. And he showed me the white paper of Bitcoin. And I was wow. like, all right. This is interesting. In fact, I didn't say that. The first thing I said was, what the hell is this? (laughs)
0: TLDR, bro. TLDR.
2: He's a CS major from Columbia. So I was like, all right, this is a little bit above where I should be. Anyway, I read it that weekend and I came back the next week and I was like, everything's changed. It was 2011. I was like, everything has changed in my mind about what foreign exchange is, what banking is, everything. And so I think everyone goes through that process around blockchain, Bitcoin, all the rest of it. I just
0: happened to do it a little bit earlier than most. And so we were trading it and doing all this stuff. So you guys were trading in offline, having nothing to do with Morgan Stanley. And Interestingly, I knew a lot of really smart finance people who were at institutions where their trading is actually heavily regulated. But back then, it was really decentralized. And one of the things I think is really interesting about it right now is that for most people, most retail investors or people who are tinkering around with crypto, they're entering it through a very centralized system into this decentralized financial world.
2: Yeah, I think you can go to these arguments of Web 1 to 2. That's where the internet started, super decentralized, read only, now went read write. And became centralized. And so we're starting to see the same cycle happen again. Bitcoin, super decentralized. I was going to some management in Morgan Stanley at the time, and they were like, we don't even know what you're talking about. Why are we even talking about this? It's not a security. It's not an ass. It's
0: nothing. But it really did change the way you thought about the actual products that you were trading.
2: Yeah, yeah, everything. I just think everything's going to get tokenized in some way. The real big epiphany was access to banking, if you can bank yourself, if there is a true, not just a digital dollar, but a programmable dollar. We've already had digital dollars since the 70s, but they're centralized. They go through the Fed system, the banking system. And so all of a sudden you can know do something with these things. It opens up the possibility of massive innovation, productivity, and all the rest of it, but also what a bank is. What is a bank in this instance? It's connecting to things of value, not storing your dollars, because that's now a wallet. And so I was drawing lines like the crazy guy on the whiteboard going, wow, we got to go and build the things and connect to things of value. And we could also tie it to a great mission, which is providing access, liquidity, and also the opportunity to get in on the first floor of something that's going up versus them being the bag holders.
0: Were there other things, though, that had shaken your confidence in this underlying product that you've been trading because you had traded all through the financial crisis? You just mentioned the Federal Reserve in particular. Think about just the palpitations in the U.S. dollar and what that meant for every other major currency based on what our Fed was doing. They devalued the currency when they lowered interest rates to combat the negative effects of the recession and the global financial crisis. And then on the way out, when they started raising rates, what did the dollar do? It ripped. For you, though, as someone with your mind, you could get your arms around that. You could make money off that. You could be a great trader at a bank doing that.
2: That's right. It was tempting, to be honest. But I thought I spent more time explaining what Bitcoin was and blockchain. Remember, we went from Bitcoin to blockchain because of all the politics around it. And in some ways, we're still there with Web3. But you spend so much time explaining what it was, it was very hard to get things going. So I left Morgan Stanley. I started a crypto hedge fund. I was trying to build an exchange. I was doing all these things yeah. in New York. Of course, the Bit license comes out and... Yeah. Made it very, very difficult to actually be domiciled here, at least for some of the. New
0: York really took a hit. When you think about how many people can't trade certain crypto assets because you're domiciled here in New York, you think of the innovation, like people like you, what if you had taken off and gone to Singapore or something like that? It actually is one of the biggest criticisms that we're literally missing out on the innovation because we're too scared to actually regulate it properly. Does that make sense?
2: It does make sense. I think, well, look, I don't know anything, but I don't think it's coincidence that all the banks are headquartered here. They feel deeply threatened by the innovation. So it makes sense it's the last state to really go through this. A lot of innovation in the West Coast, and there was skepticism from the VC world about changing banking, changing finance. They were already deeply skeptical of fintech. Fintech was coined in 2018. We already had simple chime already out and about. And then Current came in 2015,
0: 2016. So BitLicense kind of put your crypto aspirations on the back burner here. And so you and Trevor came up with, you call yourselves a neobank. You're not a bank. You are what you think the vision of a bank going forward is, or how people interact with their money and how they access it and how they pay bills and how they get their paychecks and all that sort of stuff, how they earn interest. And I'm sure we're going to get your roadmap afterwards. So what was the first iteration of Current? Sounds like a 2015.
2: Definitely not a bank. Financial technology platform is our official term. So 2015 was, okay, let's build it on Bitcoin wallet addresses and Ripple gateways. Realized really quickly that neither of those things are very good for building consumer products in 2015. We had Ethereum out and we were on the ICO of Ethereum and we're playing around with smart contracts, but everything was so nascent. And also what we're learning now in some of these protocols is the more centralized they are, the more cost efficient they are. You pay for decentralization. You really pay for it. So you have to really believe in the reason why you're paying for it. So the majority of consumers are not on the same page. That's why something like Solana versus Ethereum are doing very well, right? So all those considerations have to be taken into account. So 2015, we're like, okay, we're going to build the bank of the future. It's going to be accessed and open for everyone. It's going to be global and we're going to connect to things of value. And we're going to get people who are left out from the old system and really paying for it into this new one early. And so... We started off on that journey, realized the technology wasn't there. So we built our own banking core on a fairly traditional way. The traditional way is to plug into something like a third party that has already been doing it for 20, 30 years. And so we took the unusual step of building our own. So that enables us to then, well, we have cost efficiencies, but we have a product innovation efficiency. So we can now plug in a lot of the Web3 stuff that we're seeing right now.
0: When you talk about it's really expensive to be in this decentralized world, really you're talking about user interface. I think what you recognize is somebody who got the TLDR on Bitcoin back in 2011 from Trevor, and then obviously being involved in the Ethereum ICO in 2015, you get the tenets of decentralization. But to popularize it, to get people on these rails, you have to have this interface. I'll just say this: I'm pretty financially savvy, pretty tech savvy, but as somebody who has teenagers and trying to teach them this sort of stuff. And they're not going to be reading about this new decentralized financial world that goes on. They are current customers. And for me to watch them through this experience, through a really easy user interface, it's really important because they're going to be going up this curve. Right now, it's helping me introduce the value of money, and they're going to have paychecks that are going to come in, they're going to be direct deposits. they're going to learn how to budget, it's all going to be right there. There's going to be peer-to-peer payments, there's going to be interest-bearing accounts. That stuff is really interesting as they go out on their own, and as a parent, as you know, one of our only jobs is to, A, keep them healthy, but B, get them ready to get the hell out Get there. them out of the house. <laughs> Maybe I could be a product consultant and just say how this moves forward into their 20s, but is that a fair assessment? That's it. You've nailed it.
2: We started with team banking back in 2017. The reason why was because we identified two main groups that were forgotten, ostracized, whatever you want to call it, out of incumbent banking. One of which was teenagers, low capitalization, high hurdle for education and handholding, all the rest of it. Two people on the account, you need the parent and then the teenager. The second group was people who live paycheck to paycheck, typically on prepaid cards, cash, and the rest of it, not profitable for banks. Banks have a very high cost of maintenance for their average account holder. And we've seen that striation with wealth inequality driven in America over the last, what, 10 years at least. And so you're seeing more and more being left out because banks are focusing on the most affluent to make their business models work. And so we were like, okay, we've got these two groups. We know we can grow. Classic, innovation, tech play. You go to where everyone's not looking. And so we found it easier to go after the teams. And also in terms of, Product roadmap, CAC model, and graduation, we felt like we'd go young to old. Yeah. And so we, as a company, we started off with 17-year-olds and their parents who were like average age 45, yeah. 50, somewhere there. And then 2019 launched the paycheck-to-paycheck paycheck full checking account. And so that's done really well. And the average age for that's probably 27. And the roadmap for 22 is about going into adjacent demographics. So we will always probably be younger than most banks and maybe some of our competitors as seen by our marketing. But our product roadmap is full of value. So we've just launched high interest, 4%, 60 times national average.
0: Well, first of all, A, I have to talk about 4%. That's absolutely amazing. I saw that pop up on the app recently. You guys just introduced that. I'm like, wait, that's pretty amazing. Then you also mentioned just your marketing. And so when I introduced this, and I don't even think of it as a card. I really do think of it as a platform. And my kids are like, oh, I know that. Mr. Beast. So how is it that I didn't know? I'm almost 50. I didn't really know who Mr. Beast was, but my kids definitely do. Talk to me about this relationship with Mr. Beast.
2: I think it's totally normal that you don't know who Mr. Right. Beast you know, You're on too much YouTube at 50. Yeah. No, not 50, but... You late 40s. Yeah. So Mr. Beast, Jimmy Donaldson's a prolific YouTuber, one of the biggest. In fact, his main thing is he wants to grow his user base. He really cares about people who watch his videos. He wants to provide entertainment and he also wants to give people money, make change their lives. And so that was well in line with our mission, which was improving financial outcomes. And we were like, hold on, we've got to work with this guy. This guy's it. And so TV is fractured in terms of a media outlet. You asked Joe, knows all about this attention deficit. Oh, I thought you meant he's fractured.
0: <laughs> he
2: may well be after that tequila he's
0: made. You know that we send every guest a bottle of tequila comos. Do you? I'm looking forward to it. Do you want the Rosa or do you want the Añejo? I'd go for the Rosa. You know, you're going to get both. Done. <laughs> so you're saying TV is very fractured. It's fractured. Yeah. And it's aging. Younger people are not on it. We know streaming's
2: obviously here to stay. But when you're talking to 13, 15-year-olds to 30-year-olds. It's YouTube and TikTok, obviously. So we needed to dominate that platform, given where our product roadmap was. We were going younger to older. And he was just the number one person we wanted to work with.
0: His team's amazing. Stick around when we come back more with Stuart Sob.
1: With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros.
0: Every company has a mission, but yours really seems, when you talk about where the start of Current happened, it really seems like there's a social mission here. You mentioned inequality a couple of different times, and what we were just talking about with the ability of central banks to tinker around with currencies in the backyard where you played in finance for a very long time before you started Current... At the end of the day, there's a lot of people, and Guy Dami, my partner here, he feels very strongly that the gap in inequality keeps getting wider and wider every financial crisis, and it keeps getting better for people of means. And so your product is really trying to streamline things for people who've just been disavowed by the financial system. Is that what you'd say?
2: Yeah, that's broadly in line. The Fed and monetary policy for a big country like America, they work on averages. Everything's an average or a mean. And unfortunately, when you see this massive variance of experience, when unable to correct some of the inequalities and the inefficiency buildup from having a, exporting the dollar for like 30, 40 years... Unfortunately, we're seeing a growing and ever growing demographic that is disillusioned with the status quo. They're not floating all boats all the time. And then the Fed looks at everything and goes, well, it's kind of all right, because the numbers say it's kind of all right. But for 120 million people, it's terrible. And for 50 million people, it's insanely amazing. And then for the rest, it's like, so I think that's where all the social discourse, all the problems are. And unfortunately, banks haven't kept in lockstep with the business model and the ability to address some of those problems. And so that's what we're trying to do is say, hey, we have a lower cost of OPEX and rolling out stuff. We have the ability to reach more people. More people feel more welcome downloading an app versus walking into a bank branch where they feel judged or whatever it is. And we're able to give people products that they need and love. And so being in line with that, I think the biggest thing for us going forward, we've identified those two groups that don't have much choice. And we're about to go into adjacent demographics that do have a lot of choice, which means even more product value. We have to earn the right. That's even harder for us.
0: Let's talk about that because that's really interesting. As you go to a demographic that has a lot of choice, I have to assume that the other demographic, which you're very happy to have on, it's going to meet in the middle. You're going to create products and services that are going to benefit them, and you're going to bring them up that value chain. The incumbents are going to maybe wake up someday and be like, why did we kind of ignore this? Because we could have used all this R&D. And maybe the issue is, it's not a lot of R&D. There's no R&D. Right. Like, like, it's all maintenance of existing yeah. $12 billion yeah. or
2: whatever it is, or $10 billion at Bank of America. That's maintenance of their systems.
0: Yeah. So you're saying Web3, so are we talking community? Are we talking products where the users become a bit owners of parts of the platform?
2: That's it. So yeah, Web1 is pretty well understood now. Read, write, Web1, Web2, and then Web3 is own. And so providing access to ownership of these networks being part... You remember the Fat tails thing from Fred? Yeah, it's all there. So we don't necessarily need to be that network. We want to provide access to, for people to those networks. And of course, we will want to curate and make sure that there's limited risks and all those other things because people can't afford to lose money. There's a high, high risk, high reward environment right now in a lot of Web3. You can make a lot of money and you can lose it all. That's good for some people, but not for the majority of Americans. Yeah. And so we need to... Build products and services that highlight those things, that bring people along and educate them into... Exceptional value at
0: the lowest risk, right? And you call this a hybrid finance sort of model. Is that how you categorize it?
2: Yeah. Well, the
0: DeFi mullet. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad our listener can't see. You're actually sporting a DeFi mullet. It's a combination of a man bun and then what else is going on? What's right? these headphones? I don't. And also i got a face for radio. So you know, <laughs> yeah, listen. I saw you on CNBC last year. You were phenomenal. So, how quickly do you think you move into this? Because you and I have had these discussions offline. The idea of Web three is all over the place. And there's a lot of innovation going in a lot of different pockets, and finance is obviously the first and foremost one where really smart people like you are emerging with really smart tech people like Trevor. And then you guys are really you're going to attack some problems. You're going to go after a wide swath, and but you're going to nail a few different things. What do you think those Web3 applications that are going to be most applicable to your business?
2: I think my mind has changed recently. So we weren't ready to go back into crypto, given our neobank or fintech front end and then a the DeFi back end, right? So the DeFi and um, We weren't re- ready to go back in because we couldn't see the value to the normal consumer. No one's an average, but the right, averages right. are there, right? Yeah. And so the most obvious direction, firstly, was the DeFi yield. So basically SEC lending, getting 8 to 15%. There is risk. There's coding risk. There's liquidity risk. There's all sorts of risks. But in a world of negative real interest rates, any percent, and also now the yeah. inflation that we're all seeing in everything, it was super attractive. And I was like, this is a killer feature that will drive money from the incumbent financial system into this new system. And it will fund a bunch of projects and all this other stuff. And then secondly, NFTs. NFTs are basically a visual identification of a layer one protocol. All of a sudden now I'm invested in a layer one protocol, but I think I'm invested in a mutant ape or a Cryptoon goon or whatever it is. And I think that has been a major, major innovation.
0: That's the most applicable things for us. We had on OK Computer a couple of weeks ago a couple guys Sheldon Day, he plays for the Cleveland Browns and his former Notre Dame teammate, Amir Carlisle, who was a running back there. And they partner with Richard Sherman, who's also in the NFL. And they're starting something called the Players' Company Dow, which is really interesting. And it's kind of like a learn-to-earn model. And they're starting with a problem that they see. And they see it as a social problem. They see guys like them who've grown up in disadvantaged backgrounds. And they are people who are left out of the financial system. And then all of a sudden, they go to a school like Notre Dame and they're learning in this amazing Academic institution, and they have people looking after them. And then, if they're fortunate enough to go to the NFL now, then they're making a lot of money. And there is people just descending on them. And so, their view, and I thought this was just fascinating, is that they're going to start with the NFL because this is something that they think that they can identify with people who have been in very similar situations. But they see applications on their Dow that just go way beyond very wealthy athletes. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think before social, before some of these Web three models, it It was probably hard to get some traction going on something like that. It
2: was really hard. Yeah. And of course, fully internet only currencies based on blockchain have enabled these global plays and also massive amounts of iteration. So there's problems with DAOs right now. But there's also amazing opportunities. I see NFT with a DAO looking very similar to
0: an ICO in 2017. Kind of hypey a little bit. And there's going to be a lot of scammers. That's a great point. In 2017, you had this ICO craze. There wasn't community around it. It seemed very financialized. It was about greed. It was 2000 again, wasn't yeah, it? Right. You remember when in 2000, everyone wanted to be a CEO for five minutes to IPO, and then you're like, done? But let me ask you this. Did the bear market in 2018 and 2019, into the pandemic did it change your mind about the things that you thought you believed about decentralization specifically in finance? Because it seems like you created a business based on some of those tenants. I'm just curious if the assets, when they were so depressed in the summer of 2020 at the lows, did it make you rethink any of this?
2: Never. It's always been an opportunity to accumulate participation in those networks that i think are valuable and i'm pretty old school in this game and more traditional in where i think the value is i think bitcoin is something separate to everything else and will be persistent
0: you said you were a part of the ethereum ICO, so you're not a maximalist definitely
2: not but they're just different things i think there are different protocols just in life at the moment we're providing current access to the visa network and the fed network and the ach network you don't see it but that's really what you got and of course, there's a cost of moving that money. There's a fraudulent aspect and all the rest of it. And of course, connecting people to these new networks, which will do different things, like NFTs are very different to what Visa can do right now. And there'll be fraud and costs of moving those money and all the rest of it. And so connecting people to those things and making sure it's seamless and easy to understand and amazing experience is what we want to do. So I've never doubted in any of these downturns. In fact, I'm always rubbing my hands
0: going, all right, yeah. here we go. If you look at Bitcoin, it made a high of 69,000 in November. Nice. <laughs> today it was trading at 37,000. It traded as low last week or two weeks ago, 32 or something like that. So let me ask you this though, the charts don't look good. This is me fast money. And let's just say the frenzy is burning off in NFTs. And if you think about you go to Twitter and the floor prices and punks and this, and all the Twitter spaces and the clubhouses, what if we are on the precipice of another bear market for you, given what you believe you just put your head down and you continue to build on those rails and you keep continuing to iterate. Yeah, I think
2: to address the price thing, I think Bitcoin is now heavily capitalized. It's a mature market given everything else. Would it go through 30? I think there's a shot that it goes through 30. We saw the Biden administration using the Russia-Ukraine thing to go and stick one in and say, oh, we got to do something. So we may see some legislation or some kind of sideswipe that could in Q1 maybe move it through 30. I would see that as a buying opportunity. Yeah. If it's at 30, people are going to talk about it's going to 15. So if people are saying it's going to 15.
1: Well,
0: 20. 20 is that number. When it that, broke out. From 2017 and putting your trader hat on again, there's a huge... 14K, yeah. 20K, that thing.
2: Yeah, so it may be fills.
0: Well, here's the thing. And I asked this on the podcast of a lot of people who believe what you believe about the future of finance, the future of tech, and really how crypto assets and some of these protocols fit going forward. I guess the point is the smartest people I know in finance and tech believe very similarly. And some, they don't mind when the weak hands get shaken out, I guess. And I go back and I think in 18 and 19, the people that I had met in 17 and the people who were killing it in 2021. They're the ones who put their head down. They just continue to build.
2: Yeah. That's the best way to do it. Don't touch
0: your wallet. Just go and build. Don't lever up. I did lever
2: up once and I lost a lot. And I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. You don't need to lever up in the volatility of these markets. It is insane. It's huge. There's no Fed to govern, minimize the shocks. So it's a pure market, pure trading market. And you don't need leverage. It's already going to do its thing. If Bitcoin goes through 30 In my view, in the next four years, it could be 150 to 300, 400. Like, that's an amazing return for anyone, if that's right. I just think you don't need leverage, but you do need access and some capital to participate in
0: some of these things. As we've seen the price of some of these big crypto assets come in, I've seen people talking about how the floors have been lifting on some of these big NFT projects. Now, obviously, the underlying value is going down, but the floor price in ETH terms or Solana is going up. What do you make of that?
2: I think what's happening is it's a liquidity thing. So the layer ones, Ethereum, Solana, Bitcoin, they're very liquid and they're highly correlated to risk assets now. If you look at it, it's the highest ever. And so that's what I meant by Bitcoin changing things and it's now something else, I think. And so we've seen a downturn, Feds remove liquidity, all this other stuff. We've got crazy hikes priced in. And so everything's sold off because there's a lot of hedge fund guys in there. There's a lot of investors in there. There's traditional money in there now. And so it sold off and people ran to low liquidity. Good luck trying to sell 150 board apes. There was a DAO that's trying to do that. Yeah. You just can't do it. And so, what's happening is, is that in dollar terms, they're holding their value. And so, that's why in yeah. Ethereum terms or Solana terms, they're going up. And so, everyone is thinking in the same way. They're like, I'm going to go into a low liquidity asset that people will probably not sell. Yeah store
0: my value, which is very, very unique. I've never seen this. It's happened once before. This has going on for weeks. We had Alexis Ohanian on here, and he's a genius. He founded Reddit and 776. They're going to kill it, and they're focused on Web3. And he and I were talking about this very thing. This was a couple weeks ago. And I said to him, in a year from now, I have to think that the floor price on board Ape Yacht Club is going to be below where it is right now. At the time, it was 82 ETH, And that was equal to about 260000 And there's 10,000 of them. Now, I know that the hedge funds and there's like a lot of institutional money have been buying. That's the only way that works is if they think that they hold them for a long term and it's like buying a Picasso because otherwise that lack of liquidity is going to really work against them. Do you agree with that or no?
2: A hundred percent. Look at the people who are announcing that they're buying. Bieber just bought one, four million or whatever. And so these guys are not going to sell. They're not going to sell. So we're removing liquidity with really strong hands. Now, does the
0: floor keep going up? All right, you've given us a lot to chew on about how you see the world, the financial world going forward here. Give us a sense, and I think I have some ideas about it based on this conversation. What's the product roadmap? I have this product. I use it. My family uses it. It's really easy to use. It's actually solving some problems for me and my family right now. What are some of the things as a current customer I can expect to see over the next few years? So as you know, we've got a team
2: banking product, which is very wide in its attractiveness to who would use it, like yourself. We have a paycheck to paycheck product, a full banking product that the hook is primarily earned wage access, it's access to your money as quickly as possible. And that's doing very well. And over this year, 2022, we're moving into adjacent demographics with more value. So the average person on, say, 50K or 75K has a lot of choice in America. Don't need another bank account, really, unless you've been feed over all the rest of it. And then you're pushed into another alternative or you change your job, which you probably are not doing, given the numbers I've just seen. Well, we've already launched 4% interest. I already mentioned that. That should be interesting to everyone, 60 times national average.
0: There's no like minimum balance or anything like that?
2: No, there's just a maximum, 6K
0: at the moment. But for that demographic, that's a great place to be.
2: Yeah, for most people, it's great. And then crypto trading, you'd think we'd have it already, right? We've looked at this a million times. We wanted to do it right. And so it's really onboarding, not just trading. It's onboarding into the stable coins, into the financial system, which will unlock partnerships with Polkadot and Acala, which is then driving DeFi gains and yields for people. So they have that exceptional value in the least risky way possible. And so that's coming in Q2. We have credit building in Q3. The team project at the moment, I know, costs a little money, $3 a month per kid. It's going free this month. So we're dropping the barriers to entry. So you're saying I owe you a beer in a couple months? Yeah. or those two tequilas.
0: They're coming, buddy. All right. So it seems like a lot of these products are really geared towards that 20-something out on their own. So getting away from that team product that I know here, is there anything else we should expect? Q3
2: will have not just credit building, but credit products. And so we're looking at how we can deliver products in a innovative, high-value way, low-cost way, making sure they're doing it right to people that need the help, need the access. Look, we all know that inflation is going ballistic and probably rolls off in h 2 But it'll be persistent for the next decade. There will be some inflation for the next decade. And people will have a higher cost of living, so they'll need to save more. And also they'll need to maybe even borrow cheaper than where they can at this point. So making sure that we roll that out in Q3. So looking at adjacent demographics, average age 28, we'll probably go up to 32, 34, median age somewhere there. I mean, listen,
0: you are not a bank. You are a financial tech platform here. No, I see what I did there. (laughs) I like that. You listen to the podcast, obviously, on the tape, Okay, Computer. We talk about markets. We talk about trends. What are some things that are on your radar, both personally and professionally, that you're keeping a very, very close eye on? It's been a very volatile period in public markets. We've seen a lot of fintech companies that make look a lot like your sort of business, they've been volatile. I think that as far as investors in public markets are concerned, valuation has become a thing. They still believe in the promise of the disintermediation and taking on some of these big stodgy incumbents. And it looks like if you look at in private markets, the money keeps flowing, flowing into fintech. It's like the hottest area. I'm just curious. Give us your thoughts of the current landscape.
2: If you look at any fintech index or look at PayPal today, down 25%, something like that. I haven't checked recently. Perfectly healthy companies that are growing very well, giving forward guidance, basically at high multiples, giving a low forward guidance. We know how that ends, especially with the backdrop of the Fed. The Fed's not really coming to save us. They may not hike as much, but they're not really going to save us. So at least at this point. And so you can imagine Q1, I think, is still volatile. Volatile to down. And I know there's this reprieve right now in some areas, but I don't think it lasts. And so I think these good companies are just going to weather the storm. The idea here is that higher inflation for H1 is going to lead to lower spending on people who don't have as much money. And of course, that's going to affect us, it's going to affect a lot of our competitors, and you're starting to see the public market do that. We're moving to adjacent demographics from last year, we saw this coming. And so we were like, okay, we need to start additional revenue line items, as well as slightly adjacent, more affluent demographics to balance the books. And so that's how we're going against that. I do think that these base effects of inflation will roll off in H2. The Fed will realize that they don't need to hike as much. They're going to hike three or four times. Then it's going to be growth on. And there's a lot of money in the private markets who are just trying to get a reasonable deal. I don't even think they're trying to get a good deal anymore. I think the VC guys are like, you know, I just need like a 20x (laughs) multiplier on a hot one. And I feel for them because I'm on the other side. Are you seeing
0: things cool off a little bit? I know you have a lot of friends in the startup community, a lot of founders and fintech.
2: You're seeing more M&As. So people who can't get the funding are not getting funding, so they're going to M&A. So you'll see a lot of those. If you SPAC'd, it was bad. That was a negative selection bias. And you don't want to SPAC still. I think eventually SPAC's become useful, but not yet. It's a tough market. We'll work through this in Q1 and then in Q2, I think. We'll see the Chime IPO at some point. Stripe too. If you're talking to Goldman Sachs as your guy and you're like, this is terrible. Let's not do it yet. They're talking spring. And if I was them, I would see how Q2 goes April, May. If it's good, go. And then if it's not,
0: you push it to October, November interesting that you mentioned SPACs. When you think of the height of that activity was Lily Q1 of 2021. And what started to happen in the public markets is that high valuation names that have been public, let's say for a year or two or more, had already just started to top out. And public investors were already starting to get very finicky about valuation. And I would suspect if you're really trying to do something disruptive, if you're really trying to do it for the long haul, the idea is to keep your head down and continue to do it a little bit in the private markets.
2: I think that's our superpower in the private market is that it's less liquidity for obvious reasons. And we get the opportunity and the luxury of not have board meetings every quarter and all the rest of it, but we're not reporting. and So we can build the value that surpasses that hectic, punitive quarter by quarter. And so we're able to continue to build to deliver product.
0: You started in 2015. You have over 3 million customers right now. Yeah, 3.7. Wow. All right. growing very fast, because I remember reading a press release right around the time I met you in early 2020. Maybe you'd just gotten over 2 million. Does that sound right? That's right, yeah. You're on the pace to double subscribers. When you look in the public market, you just mentioned PayPal is down... 25%. 25%. This is not a small company. This was a $300 billion market cap company that was equal to the market cap of Bank of America. This was at its highs maybe a year ago. What does that make you think? You think your company is going to be a very big company someday, and you see that volatility square. The same thing was up north of a $100 billion market cap. I think it's under 50 right now. It's down in sympathy with this PayPal.
2: The fintech or the tech tantrum. That's why I'm calling it. I'm sorry to bring it back to the macro again, but the Fed has driven with a negative real interest rates and risk-free rate of return where it was. It pulls forward the future. So people have to bet on the future a lot. And the future is tech and the intersection of that monetization tech is fintech. And so we have benefited with all those multiples and all that other stuff. But when the Fed removed the punch bowl, as we've just seen, multiple contraction comes in all the rest of it. And so as much as we're innovating and we're doing all these great things to deliver products and values that the incumbent banks and financial system are not doing or unable to do, we are still a function of the macro environment. But it doesn't mean the businesses are going away. I personally
0: think a square at 50 billion or 40 billion is a great buy. I think these are great companies and they're going through something that is really not on them. They went through this period of hyper acceleration and the acceleration of their business models. It really just confirms everything that they've been building these companies for over the last 10 or 20 years in the case of PayPal here. So if anything, it's taking out some excess. And I think that's a healthy thing. You've been around the markets for a while. A lot of great things are born out of that. Well, listen, Stuart, you become a really good friend of mine, and I actually am in awe of what you built at Current. I'm a user of your product, and it's so impressive. And Guy Adami and I are so proud to have you as a sponsor of our podcast here. And listening to you, the range of what we just talked about is amazing. I hope you come back on, and let's just talk macro, because that would be pretty fascinating.
2: Anytime, Dan. I would love to. And thank you for having me today. And um, We're obviously honored to enable you and Guy to do what you do best.
0: We enjoy it. And I will tell you that every time I listen to my own podcast, which I do every day, I love listening to myself read the current read. Thank you for joining us on the tape and OK Computer. Right on.
1: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.